Well, like I said, we're going to read a lot this morning. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at a particular event and, and a message given by one of the characters in the Bible that we met, were introduced to last week, Stephen. Now, if, if uh, you weren't here with us, we've been going, taking our way right through the book of Acts. And last week where we were at is we saw that there was a bit of an issue with the new church being established in Jerusalem. It had just been growing, 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 uh, massive growth all at once. But there was a particular group of Greek-speaking Christians that were kind of being neglected with some of the distribution that was being passed out to some of the widows in their community. And so what happened was the church didn't want that to happen, and so they addressed it by appointing these seven Greek-speaking Christians, now Jewish Christians, that that could go into and begin ministering to these Greek-speaking groups and synagogues throughout the city, all right? And so Stephen, who we're going to look at here today, (coughs) today, excuse me, was one of those seven men selected to serve in the church. And what we're going to see here today, the reason it's so long is because we're not going to break his message up. We're going to read everything that he speaks to the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, the group of Jews, all right? And from that, what we're going to see is that he's going to speak some really hard things to them. It's going to be heavy, and, but he's speaking truth, all right? And that's what we're going to focus on here today. That's the, the title of the message is Speaking Truth. And we're going to look at that a little bit. We're going to look at what Stephen did and how he spoke truth, but then we're also going to talk about what that means for us. All right? So let's begin here with the, the thing that leads up to this in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And we'll start just with that first verse. Here's what it says. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, we'll stop right there for a second. So far, as we've been going through the book of Acts, you are very used to people doing signs and wonders, right? The beginning of the book of Acts is just loaded with these incredible things that are happening. People are being healed. Uh, Incredible stuff has gone on. But this is the first time that we see a, a, a person who is not one of the 12, of the 12 apostles, followers of Jesus. This is the first time we see somebody else now stepping out and doing signs and wonders. And I also think it's important to notice that the way it describes Stephen there, full of grace and power, if you go back into chapter 4, verse 33, you see that's exactly how Luke described the apostles. That the ministry that they were doing, the miracles and the signs and wonders they were doing, was because they were full of grace and power. And there's a reason that it's, it's, um, it, it's identical is because what he's conveying here is, hey, for the first time, God is now expanding the ministry. He's now allowing other people to step out in the power of the Spirit to do these things. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And the source of these signs and wonders is God. It's always God. But God was the one that was expanding the ministry. Because if he hadn't, there would have been signs and wonders done by these 12 apostles until they were killed or died, and that'd be it. But instead, what we see is God expands the ministry and begins bringing other people in and equipping other people and empowering other people, so much so that here we are, you know, 2,000 years later and experiencing God in our lives as well. All right, and so he's doing that. He's beginning to minister. In verse 9, it says this, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council." And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. All right. So if you've been following along in the story, you know how the council felt about this. They bring Stephen in, and he starts talking about this Jesus guy, and they're like, oh, no, not again. 
We thought we've done with this, you know. We've had to bring in Peter and John. And then we brought in all the apostles. And we've threatened them. And we've arrested them. And we've commanded them not to speak of this. We thought this was going to, you know, just diffuse itself. And I'm sure there's a few people looking up at Gamaliel. Because for those of you who remember a few weeks back, Gamaliel is one who stood up and said, if it's a man, it'll just go away. Don't worry about it. And so they're like, yeah, Gamaliel, here it is again, huh? What do you think? But that's what's happening. And so now they've, they've gone to court because they couldn't out-argue Stephen. And this is also the same kind of thing that they did with Jesus, right? They try to stir up people to tell lies. To say, well, he's doing this and he's doing that. It's all false. It's not true of what they're saying. But they're trying to figure out some way to quiet down Stephen. And here's now Stephen going to get an opportunity to deliver what uh, he has to say about this in his defense. And it says there in chapter 7, verse 1, And the high priest, who remember he's at the top of the council, the high priest said, are these things so? And now we begin the long read, okay? You guys can do this. Just keep along. Stay along here. Just follow along. You'll make it happen. Here's what it says in verse 2. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, Jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, 
saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received, he, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of, wilderness and, tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it, it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Ah, you did it. Now you have heard your reading for the day. Beep. All right. Here is what Stephen gets up and begins telling the council. The council calls him in, remember, and, and the, the, the threats of these, these lying people are, he doesn't know what he's talking about. This guy gets up and he's preaching all this weird stuff that didn't even happen. And so Stephen steps up and says, let me tell you what I've been teaching. And he begins, proceeds to go right through, if you guys were here when we went through Genesis, you remember a lot of these stories that he refers to. He goes right through Genesis, jumps into Exodus, touches in on the, the, the prophets. Um, he looks at King David and Solomon. He's, he's pulling all of the history, all of the right doctrine, all of the stuff. He's pulling it all together. And, and, and so much that he just lays the whole thing out for them where the council is like, yeah, we agree with everything he said right there. That's all legit. This is all true. In fact, he's even quoting things the right way. And remember, you're now standing, Stephen is standing in front of 71 people, the members of this council, who are experts in the laws of Moses. They have memorized the first five books of the Bible and a lot of the rest of it. When he's quoting these prophets, they know what he's quoting. This is not new news to any of these people. All right, you understand. That's what's happening. So they're following him along all the way through here, and they're like, okay, yeah, uh-huh, that's right, mm-hmm, you got it. You were trained pretty well for a Greek guy. It's okay, all right. He goes all the way through, but then this is what he, he focuses on. And I, I just want to pull two things out of what we've just read there specifically, um, because Stephen knows exactly where his beliefs and what the teachings of Jesus, where they diverge from the council. But he hasn't got to that yet. He's saving that as kind of a surprise ending, Okay. But what he does point out to them, and they won't argue with this, is two important rejections in their history, in their past. The first one is the rejection of Joseph. And he pulls that out. And remember, he goes into detail about Joseph being sold by his brothers. And if you were here with Genesis, we looked at this whole thing. Joseph was one of the 12 patriarchs. And the brothers picked on him and finally said, we hate this guy. We're getting rid of him. He's dad's favorite. He gives him this fancy coat and stuff. We want to get rid of this guy. We're going to throw him in a pit and we're going to kill him. And then a group of traders, slave traders, comes by. And they're like, what? Well, actually, let's not kill him. We'll just yank him out of the pit and sell him. So they sell him, he ends up in slavery in Egypt. And then he goes through all that stuff that Joseph went through that we studied. All right? But ultimately what happened, even though he had been rejected by his own family, his own brothers, what happens at the end of Joseph's life? Ultimately, God uses him to rescue the whole nation. He brings salvation to all of the people of Israel. They would have starved to death in Canaan if it hadn't been that God had placed Joseph in Egypt when he did. All right? So they, they rejected Joseph, yet he saved the nation. And then Stephen points out Moses. 
Moses is like the big guy to all of the council, all right? The laws of Moses, who Moses was, that's the one that they think about. That's the one they focus on. It's Moses, Moses, Moses. The Ten Commandments were given by Moses. The tabernacle was given by Moses. Moses was the one that pulled us out of slavery and gave us this land. Moses is like the main guy. But what does he say about Moses? He says, Moses was rejected. Moses, when he first came on the scene, the people were like, get out of here. Who do you think you are? And then later in Moses' life, after he's already done these miraculous things, the ten plagues of Pharaoh, go home and watch the prince of Egypt if you don't know what I'm talking about. They, they've come out of there. They've, they've gone into the promised land. They've gotten out of Egypt. They're doing all these things. And then what happens? God calls Moses up onto the hill and says, hey, come on up here because I've got some laws I'm going to put in place for you. But when Moses leaves, they're like, I think he died on the hill. Like, we've got to just go on without him. And they make the golden calf, and they do all these different things, right? They've rejected Moses immediately. As soon as he's gone, they're like, well, we're moving on from that guy. That's what Stephen points out. He says, you reject, the, our ancestors rejected Joseph, but he was God's plan to save our nation. People even rejected Moses, this guy that you venerate and study now. And he was the one that God was using for these things. But you, you've rejected him. And now, this is where the surprise ending comes, and it's only a couple verses here. Verse 51, here's, what he, here's where he turns. So, so far the council's like, yeah, uh-huh, we like that, we like that. And then Stephen turns and he says in verse 51, you stiff-necked people. All right, and that's not a compliment, guys. All right, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. All right, you may not get the idea of what's being conveyed here. But Stephen is bringing it to this Sanhedrin. He is pulling no punches. He is not being soft-spoken or quiet about any of this. He is tearing into them. Okay? This is heavy. And what is he saying here? He's saying, just like you rejected Joseph, just like you rejected Moses, now you've rejected Jesus, the Messiah. This is what he's saying here. And he declares judgment on them. He says, you are guilty of betraying and murdering the righteous one. Well, as you might imagine, this is not going to go over well. Look at verse 54. It says, now when they had heard those things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. Okay, that's how mad they were. I don't know if you ever clench your teeth. I have a problem with this, is what my dentist tells me. Clenching my teeth, right? But they're clenching their teeth. They're so angry. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, he probably should have kept that to himself, but he doesn't. Here's what it says in verse 56. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears, they're covering their ears here, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That is, he died. All right. Stephen's accusation here was basically the most offensive thing possible. All right. He could have have started out with a whole list of your mama jokes, and it would not have affected these guys as bad as this did. All right. There was nothing else that Stephen could have possibly said to the council that would have made them more angry and more offended and more enraged. It was as bad as it could possibly be. 
You killed the Messiah, and now I see him standing next to God. So in their minds, that is blasphemy, and they just explode with this anger. They pick up rocks. If you're wondering, what does that mean, being stoned? I well, it had a different connotation in those days. <laughs> and being stoned in those days was they would literally pick up big rocks and throw them at a person until that person died. And so that's what's happening. They are, they are pummeling him with rocks, gathering around him and murdering him in that way. Also, just to point out real quick for you, if you're, if you're new to the Bible, the reason there's that weird verse in there is like, and there's this young man named Saul standing there where they put the clothes. Saul is going to have a major, he's going to be a major contributor to the Bible in the future, all right? Um, that's why that's snuck in there because this is when Saul actually comes into the, the, the entire scene of what's happening, all right? Now, now, here's what I want us to think about here today because you're like, okay, what are we going to learn out of all that? There's a lot of stuff there. I'm not going to crawl through the history. Um, You know the history if you've been here studying these things. And if you don't, you can do that on your own and go back through. We're not going to do that. When we study the Bible, we're not trying to just learn the information and details that are found in the Bible. All right? Did you know that? Um, Yes, this Bible is a textbook in some ways. But you don't read it the same way that you would read a typical textbook. You know, if you've got to take the, the, the driving test at the DMV, right, you want to read their little handbook and say, here's the driver's handbook. I need to know what's in here so that I have the information so that when I take the test, I can pass this test, right? Um, that's not the only thing that we're learning when we try to study the Bible because the Bible itself tells us that it's living and it's active. There's more going on here than just a bunch of words on a page. There's more than just a bunch of facts here. It's a spiritual book that transforms our lives. And and when we study a story like this one, what we want to do is is do more than just read it and learn the facts. Okay? Uh, We really want to try to understand the lessons that are in it and the principles that are in it and figure out how we're to apply that to our lives. Because learning how to apply Scripture is part of being a disciple of Jesus. This is what we talked about last week. Right? And one of the principles that I think is found in this passage centers, I've already told you, on truth. It centers on truth. And part of it is the way that that Stephen here brings the truth to this council. Now, let's just take a look at it here as we go through just a little bit here. What Stephen did was he delivered truth. But it wasn't necessarily, and in his case it definitely wasn't, easy truth. This was not an easy thing to do. You might have just thought, oh, he's just kind of a cocky guy, and he had his opportunity, and so he was like, I'm going for these guys. Okay, Stephen also, though, had been living during this time, and he was fully aware of what might be meant by him delivering truth like this. He understood when he stood up here to start talking through this with these people, he understood what's at stake here. He at least knew, I'm going to be walking out of here bloody, At very best. At worst, I'm going to walk out of here. I'm not going to walk out of here. He knew this is what's going on. But he knew he had to deliver truth, no matter what the cost might be. And that is what we see here, because it was truth nonetheless, but delivering that truth cost him his life. Now, here's the thing about truth. The Bible has a lot of of pretty strong claims about what is right and wrong. I don't know if you know that yet, but it does. It does. And and it has a lot to say about what's good and what's not good. And the truth of the Bible um, is is unyielding, unwavering. It doesn't move. It's not kind of wishy-washy about things. It doesn't say, hey, this is probably the better way to do things. There's a lot of places in the Bible where it's like straight out, this is right, this is wrong. This is black, this is white. Now, there are other things that don't fit that way that are also in Scripture. And sometimes people, as people, we want to try to force it into one of these categories. We have to know the difference between what does it say is, is right and what does it say is wrong and what are the things that leaves us to sort out. All right? And that's kind of the hard part sometimes in certain parts of Scripture. But the Bible has a lot to say about truth. And it also teaches us that as long as this world will exist, truth will be under assault. Sometimes violently, 
like it was with Stephen. And, and, and let's think about this for a minute. Because look at the world you live in. I think this message is relevant to us today when we're talking about truth. Because we live in a world right now that is constantly trying to dismantle truth. Trying to say there is no truth. Truth is what you make it. Truth is how I feel about this today. And that is going to be my truth. You ever heard anybody say that? Well, I'm just trying to find my truth. You find your truth, I'll find my truth. All right, so what, what if my truth is not like your truth? Which one's truth? Right? There's certain things that if we're going to say this is truth, then there's going to be a, a, an opposite to that, that that is a lie. We can't have two opposing truths. One's true and one's not. All right? Sin is sugar-coated in our society. And there's places where the Bible would say, hey, that is sin to do that thing. But then other people would say, well, you know, sin, that's a heavy word to use. Like, let's just agree to disagree, you know. And we try to soften it. Human ideas are exalted above God's laws in our society. And we're encouraged to embrace the illusion that truth is what we make it. And by the way, guys, that's not new. You might feel like, oh, yeah, you know, in my great-grandma's age, it wasn't like that. People knew this was true and this is false. Well, guys, there's always been an attack on truth. You go back in and study the life of Jesus. I don't know if you remember this, but when Jesus was questioned by Pilate, after the religious leaders, this same council that we were looking at here today, after they condemn Jesus and they drag him over to Pilate to get him executed, and there's a little dialogue in the Gospel of John where Pilate and Jesus are talking back and forth, and, and Pilate's like, well, so are you a king or what? And what are you doing here? And so are you telling me you've got authority? And Jesus is like, well, yeah, you've got authority, but God's given you that authority and, and, and all these things. They go back and forth. And one of the things that Pilate says is so interesting there because Jesus tells him, hey, this is the truth. This is the way it is. And what does Pilate say? He, he sarcastically gives him the, the thing that he's been wrestling with his whole life and everybody else in his society is wrestling with. Well, what is truth? That's what he says to Jesus. What is truth? Truth, I mean, you know, so-and-so says that's true, and he says that's true, and the Caesar says this is true, and what is truth, right? So so the the assault against truth is not something that's just in our generation. It's always been that way. But I need you to know here today that a true Christian faith rejects the idea that there is no truth. It rejects that idea. It claims that the worldview, the prevailing worldview that says there is no truth What the Bible tells us is, that's a lie. That is a lie. So I'm going to give you right now four truths about truth. Okay? Four of them. And this isn't the only four, trust me. But here's four truths about truth here today. First, and we definitely see this with Stephen, and we see it in our own lives, truth is not always popular. It's not popular. Trust me, after Stephen said what he said to that, that uh, council, that Sanhedrin group, he knew very clearly, what I'm about to say is not popular. <laughs> he didn't have any false uh, understanding of that. But in Stephen's case, God prompted him to push hard against these religious leaders. He was unwavering about it. He was strong-handed with it. And he opposed the popular opinion because of God. Okay? Now, I base that assumption, that observation, on the fact that Luke tells us here he was full of the Holy Spirit when he was doing this. What I do want you to recognize about this is with Stephen, when he's coming up here in this group, it wasn't just that he was as arrogant. It wasn't just that he was kind of fired up and kind of wanted his own way and was doing his own thing. It wasn't that he was coming in here to kind of put them in their place because he was mad about what they were doing. That's not what was actually motivating Stephen here. Stephen had the truth, but the reason he did what he did was because the Holy Spirit had prompted him to do it this way. This was God speaking through Stephen, and Stephen was conveying the righteous anger of God toward these leaders. And it got him killed. It got him killed. It was so unpopular, the truth, it got him killed. Now, from a human standpoint... This kind of feels like a, a foolish, like a foolish waste of life, doesn't it? 
I mean, come on, Stephen just got appointed to his new job serving widows like a day ago or something, you know? Maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months. Say, couldn't have God found a better thing to let Stephen, you know, go to his old age, like serving the church? That's that's a human standpoint of this. We see this and we're like, man, that was a real waste. Like, God should have just sent him a letter or sent an angel or something that he couldn't stone to death. But no, he he sent Stephen. God knows what he's doing. The foolishness of God is still greater than our greatest wisdom. And what happened here, and I think the reason that God did it this way, is because God, through Stephen, was drawing a hard, crisp line for the leaders of the council. It's it's pretty amazing to me that God gave the council as many opportunities to repent and to change their ways as he did. Now, we think about the council, and we think about, oh, they're the guys who condemned Jesus. They're the ones who did all that they did, and they're just evil, wicked, wicked, wicked. But God, the Father, still loved those people too. And he wanted to see them change. And he gave them opportunities. Not only did Jesus himself come in front of them, but then what happened later? Here comes Peter and John standing before the council, telling them about Jesus. After that, all 12 apostles come in. They tell them about Jesus. So so there's lots of things that have been happening. And now here, Stephen joins that list, comes in, tells them about Jesus. They'd heard the truth. And they'd be condemned by it. And they added more blood to their hands by murdering Stephen. Now Stephen was the first martyr of the Christian church. Meaning he died because of his faith. But the other thing that I want you to see is that this event, Stephen being killed right here, would result in the next major phase of God's work in the world. Because until this point, the Christian faith had been held in check in the boundaries of Jerusalem. The apostles being in the upper room in Jerusalem, they experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit and began to minister throughout Jerusalem in the area. And it was all in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. But because of Stephen and the persecution that was going to take off after Stephen's death, it would push the church out into the surrounding communities. It would do as Jesus said it would. It would begin moving into the regions beyond. Now, one quick side note here before we um, continue. You might have had this question as I did. As you're, you're reading this and you learn about Stephen being stoned to death, you're like, wait a minute. How is it that they did that? Because if you do remember the story of Jesus, um, one of the things that the Sanhedrin themselves says in John 18 um, is that when they bring him to Pilate, Pilate initially says, I don't want to deal with your stuff about your laws, your Jewish stuff. Like, you take care of it. And what did they say to Pilate at that point? They're like, well, we'd kill him, but we're not allowed to kill him. We're allowed to do all the things. We can imprison people. We can fine them. We can do all kinds of stuff with the Jewish law, but we haven't been given the authority by Caesar to actually execute someone. So what's happening here? Has that changed? I don't think it did. But there's a difference because Jesus, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, if you remember the triumphal entry, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, it was a big deal. Jesus had been ministering all through the regions. Everybody had heard about him. It was the talk of the town. He had kind of a high profile. He was almost like celebrity status. They treated him like a king when he first came into Jerusalem. And so the whole city is in an uproar about this Jesus guy. And so with all of this happening and all this going around, it had already caught the ears of Rome. Because Rome, all they cared about was money, taxes. Sound familiar? That's all they wanted. So they didn't care as long as everything stayed um, nice and quiet and the tax flow, tax revenue kept coming. But when Jesus came in, it was like, okay, there may be, we may have a rebellion on our hands. We need to deal with this. Stephen, on the other hand, nobody's ever heard of the guy. He's just some random Greek Christian guy that is supposed to be waiting tables with this little group of people. And so I think probably what happened is he just didn't, get to the, the radar of Rome. So I think Rome just kind of ignored it. That's my best guess. We don't have anything in Scripture that describes why, what happened. But his stoning him was technically illegal. Um, but because Rome had no vested interest, maybe they just ignored it. We don't know. All right. Truth is not always popular. I told you that as the, the first uh, point. The Bible also tells us why. It tells us why truth 
will always be under assault, while it, while it will never stay popular. What Jesus told us, what he declared, is there's a spiritual battle taking place for the souls of humanity. All right? There's a spiritual battle taking place. And one of the primary ways that Satan and his minions attacks humans is by trying to draw them away from truth. If God is the one who has established truth and and has a truth-based way of living life, and there's this other spiritual entity, the devil, that wants to pull people away from God and God's truth, then obviously one of his primary tactics is, I just want to try to erode their idea of truth. Let's pretend there is no truth, because then I can make them do all kinds of things, and I can pull them away from God. And isn't that exactly how sin works? At first, sin seems all shiny and pretty. Sin seems like, oh, that would be so good. I need that. And when you hear this, you're like, well, truth isn't popular. And I'd be like, well, lies aren't really popular either. Actually, they are. They are. They're just disguised pretty well. I had the opportunity um, a few weeks back as, as most of you know, um, to go uh, visit a friend in Australia. It was an awesome trip. I had a really great time. And um, there's a lot of things that are very different in their culture there. Um, but one of the things that is not different in their culture that you could see in lots of places around here too, um, we had gone to this restaurant one evening, and um, I don't remember exactly where we were at, but we were in this restaurant and we were, we were eating a meal. And next to the restaurant, actually attached to it, they had a... Um, uh, a sports gambling kind of space attached to it. So, like, you could, you could eat in the restaurant, there was a bar in the back, and then there was this, like, gambling place. All right, and so we're sitting there one evening, we're just eating our meal, and inside this room, it's like all these TV screens, right, of horse races happening in England and dog races and Australian rules football, which is a whole other beast, by the way. Um, they've got NFL games on going over there, you know? It's like... I don't know, 2 a.m. over here, but they're replaying, like, they've got all these different things going on. And uh, so in that whole thing, um, they've, got, they've got this all happening, and um, it's, it's, it's sad because as I'm sitting there, I'm watching this guy who, who comes in, and he looks rough. You can tell, like, this guy, he may have slept outside last night. I don't really know. And he's got his hands full of these tickets, these, like, white tickets. And he's come through, and he's like, like bloodshot eyes staring at these screens and looking at this and going from here to there and he's got a little pencil and he's writing down all these notes and he's running back to the bookie window, you know? He's putting his bets in and he's coming back out again and he's looking at it and he's coming back some more and he's, he's cashing this one in and he's pulling out more cash to do these things and, and I'm watching this guy and I'm thinking, this guy is so trapped in his gambling. He is so hung by this. That's all he can think about. That's all he can do. And, and, and as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, addictions never start at that place. It never starts at the horrible destruction and death, right? And for those of you who have seen the effects of addiction and been around it, you know that's not where it starts. Where does it start? It starts at the party. It starts at the fun thing. It started probably for that guy with a couple buddies saying, I bet this team's going to win. No, I bet that one's going to win. Whoa, I just, I won 10 bucks. That's pretty cool. I'm going to do that again and again. Oh, this is fun. I can make money doing this. I can quit my job to do this. And before you know it, what's happened? He's gone down the whole path and where that's the only thing you can think about. And all he cares about is getting the next bet on the board. And then I'm finally going to make it big. That's what happens. All sin leads to death. Whether it's physical death, emotional death, relational death, or spiritual death. Lies are popular, guys. Second, the second truth. I better hurry up here. Oh, man, I'm going way too slow today. Truth, second one, is that truth has many enemies, and it always will. The devil is the father of lies. Jesus said in John 8, he said, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's the hard thing about sin, is it seems good, and it's been provided to us as a lie. 
But we hear the lie, we see the lie, we think it's real, we think it's true, and it's not. If the devil can erode truth, he can destroy people. And a society cannot remain when the truth can no longer be found. Okay? When a culture begins silencing truth, it will only be a short time before it collapses. Civilization is built on trust in one another. And when nobody's trustworthy any longer, as trust evaporates, chaos is going to follow. Guys, our political system and the media that surrounds it is in a very precarious place right now. And it's for this very reason. It's almost impossible to figure out who's telling the truth. And guys... I don't care which side of the political side you're on. They're all lying. And there's a whole lot of lies being said on both sides. Don't fool yourself into thinking there's one side that's righteous and one side that's evil. You're kidding yourself. It's not the way it is. And if the citizens of a nation don't demand honesty and truth, even if it contradicts their own political leanings then the lies will keep piling up until the nation just gets smothered by it. Go look at the old USSR. (laughs) That's what happened. But this isn't just a political problem. This is a spiritual problem. It's a spiritual problem. Truth has many enemies and it always will. Third truth about truth. Truth sets us free and lies enslave us. We must devote ourselves to knowing what the truth is if we want to be truly free. That's part of being a disciple of Jesus. John 8, 31 to 32, here's what Jesus said. He said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What does that mean when he says, if you'll abide in my word? It's not just about, oh, I read it once. I, you know, I, I hit the little check mark on my app that tells me to read today. I read that verse. I I know it. I'm good. I'm in the truth. No, you abide in the truth. You live in the truth. You dwell in it. You soak in it. You learn it. You apply it. As we've talked about, you obey it. That is how you'll know the truth. That's how you will set it. It will set you free. That's why we put such an emphasis in this church about learning this book, about reading this book, about being in the Bible and making it you know, I could just stand up and give you, here's, here's four fun facts about how to make a happy, happy family, you know, or um, here's six Thanksgiving treats that make me feel warm and fuzzy inside, right? Oh, we could do that, but that's not why, what we're doing here. It's not just interesting bits of wisdom from some ancient sage. It's God's truth, which gives freedom. Uh, Paul writes this in 2 Timothy 4, 2 to 4. He says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, Re- Prove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Guess what? That time is now. That's not some far-off time, far-off place. It's now. It's now. We live in this era now. So many people believe they're chasing freedom. I'm going to be so free in this way because I've decided this is what is true. It's just not true. And they're actually becoming slaves to lies without realizing it. But I'm not going to send you home now. There's hope. Okay, there is hope. The fourth truth about truth is that truth matters to God and truth will remain forever. All right, truth will be truth until the end of time. Our God is a God of truth. Truth is part of his nature. It's part of his character. There's no place for lies or falsehood or deceit with him. He is true. Jesus said this, John 17, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. What makes the difference? He tells us, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
just a chapter later, he said this. He says, for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. The cultural and social truths, so-called truths, they'll come and go. They will. But God's truth is timeless. Mark 13, 31, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The truth, the real truth isn't going anywhere. So we don't have to worry about that. And that's the reason that he's given us the written word of God and why he's preserved it for all these centuries so that we have a fixed, tangible record of truth, a clear light in a world full of darkness. Nations will rise and fall. Empires will come and go. But God's truth may not be popular. It may be under attack, but it will always last forever. Okay, real quick here, because I I like to give you something to do Um, when I I preach a word to you. I want you to have some action with it. We have responsibility regarding truth. And I know I'm already out of time, but I need to give them to you anyway. If God's word is truth, which it is, and we've been entrusted with that truth, then we have a responsibility in front of it. All right? Christians are called to be people of truth. We're called to be people of truth. And people that live in the truth are transformed by the truth and who offer the truth to anybody that would take it. We have to receive it, we have to apply it, and we have to deliver it through faith in hope with love. First thing of that is you've got to receive it. We've got to receive the truth. How do you do that? I've told you where it is. It's right here in this book. But you've got to do more than just carry the book around and hope it kind of like by osmosis seeps in. You can't have three or four of these on the shelf or a nice little place on the coffee table. See that? That's my truth over there. No, guys, you gotta re- it's got to get inside. You've got to read it. You've got to study it. You've got to meditate on it. You've got to think about it. You've got to talk about it with your friends. That's why we have life groups. You've got to receive the truth. Psalm 51.6 says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Secondly, we have to apply it. And this is harder, because you can know the truth and not apply it to your life, especially when there's truth that we don't like to hear that comes along. We have to apply it. Um, Psalm 119.11 says, I've hidden your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. You see the progression there? It's like it goes in, I've received it, so that my actions change. You can hear, I can tell you till I'm blue in the face, you need to obey God, obey God, obey God. Here's the truth, here's the truth, here's the truth. You don't apply it, you don't do it, it's done nothing. We have to apply it. And third, finally, we have to deliver it. And I do want to bring this up too. How is it that we're called uh, to deliver truth? Because we read a story like Stevens and we're like, all right, wait till I get to work tomorrow morning. I know how to bring it on these guys. I'm going to just, I'm going to dig into them. Listen, if God, if you're full of the Holy Spirit, as Stephen was, and God has called you specifically with that hard truth that you have to deliver, well, then deliver that hard truth. I hope you make it till next week. But if not, if that's not what's going on, we need to make sure that we're tempering our truth in the way that we deliver it. We're not tempering the truth. We're not making it move. It doesn't move, right? But how we deliver it, the way Paul describes it in Ephesians 4.15, is he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. It's the same way that, that Jesus delivered truth to Pilate. When Pilate's saying, what is truth? Jesus, I already gave you truth. And, and, and he's like, well, I've got the authority to kill you. Jesus is like, you've only got the authority that God in heaven's given you. And what's the real truth? The truth was, Jesus could have said, oh yeah? Watch this, Pilate. Boom. Angels. Angels. Get them. <laughs> you know? He could have done that. That was true. He had the power to do all those things. The devil himself told him that. You can call a whole legion of angels to come down and rescue you. You know, what's the big deal? That was true, but no, Jesus knew he was speaking truth in love. He had a purpose. And if we, as a people of the truth, aren't the ones that are speaking the truth, who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? A bunch of people wandering around trying to create truth that doesn't exist. 
it's one of the most important things that we can do for the coming generations as well. Guys, speak truth to your kids, to your grandkids. Share with all the people that you have an influence upon and do it from love for them. God loves everybody, even that jerk at work. We have to bring it with love. Be people of truth even if it hurts, even if it costs us. I'm way out of time. We're going to pray. Pray with me. Father, I do thank you for this day, and I thank you for the life of Stephen. And God, I know that um, he did your work, and I'm thankful for it. And Lord, uh, as we've seen here today, that there there is truth to be told. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to be people of truth. And today, Lord, I know that uh, some people might be wrestling with this idea that there is an absolute truth and that you're the one who's created truth. And um, Lord, I pray that today you would show them that by your Holy Spirit, not by some argument that I have given or some argument that they've heard, but instead just a real recognition and a sense of your Spirit speaking into their hearts and their lives. God, uh, Your truth is the truth that sets us free. And I pray that today as well, Lord, that if there's any here today that need freedom in you, whether that be freedom from addiction, freedom from anger, freedom from regret, freedom from true guilt and sin, Lord, that you would bring freedom and wholeness and healing to their lives today. And that's as simple as them repenting and turning to you and offering their lives to you. And so, as as an aside here in this prayer, if that's you here today and you need to be set free in some way, God has called you to embrace the truth. And that is his word. And that's turning to him. And the truth is that none of us is righteous. Not a single one of us here, the most holy one in this room, is not righteous apart from Jesus Christ. And it is his blood that can wash us clean and make us whole. It's not our own works. It's not that we thought about it a lot and we're really smart. It's not that we worked really hard and sacrificed. It's that the grace of God, the goodness of God has reached down into our lives. And so today, if that's you, if you need that freedom and you need that, that, that embrace of truth, right now, where you're at, pray in your heart and ask God to draw you to him. Repent of your sins. Throw away what is not true and choose to follow after him and allow him to begin transforming your life, sanctifying you by the truth. And the truth will set you free. And for the the others of us that already have embraced that truth and are walking as Christians, Lord, we pray that today would just be a good reminder that we are people that are called to speak truth. And we pray, God, that you would give us the boldness to do that, the courage to do that, and also the love to do that. May we speak the truth in love. And may we be led by you as we speak truth, whether that's to our family this week during Thanksgiving dinner, whether that's our coworkers or our classmates or our neighbors, whatever it is, wherever you give us an opportunity to speak truth, God, may we do it being full of your Holy Spirit. Enable us, anoint us, empower us to speak your truth to others and draw many people to yourselves. We thank you for this day and we We just pray, Lord, that as we finish up today, that you'd speak to our hearts and our minds, and may we go as people of truth. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.